Matthew 21, verse 1 to 17, it says this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with his colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings for the, on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. This incredible text of scripture that we may or may not be familiar with, which is the, the text that is read every Sunday around the world on this day called Palm Sunday as, as the people reorientate their heart to the start of Holy Week. It's this incredible start where Jesus rides in. He gets himself a donkey. He rides in to fulfill scripture, the prophet Zechariah's word. He fulfills those words which were said uh, hundreds of years prior that the king would come riding to them in on a donkey. He does this and the people are in an uproar. They are full of uh, jubilee and excitement and they're shouting and declaring, praise the Lord, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and it's this great fanfare and welcome. But then there's this incredible understanding, as, as I did not stop at the end of that story, I kept just reading where the, the writer Matthew and the other authors take us on this journey, is that Jesus' journey does not start, stop just riding into town, that in verse 12, if you notice, there was a pivot that actually something happened as he made his way towards the temple. Now, for us to understand the whole context of this text and, and what we are saying to say in this, in this sermon tonight, is that that road from Bethpage all the way in to Jerusalem it's a, it's a straight street, and when you get to the place um, at the center of it, it gets to a crossroads where you're able to turn right and go to where the seats of political power is, where Rome had set up their headquarters, where if you were to plan a, a coup, you would go that way, and if you go left, it's to the temple. And it's this phenomenal thing. The crowds are rejoicing. Our king is here, the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. They've recognized him. They're declaring, praise him. They've put all their hopes in the merry band are following him. They're so excited. Yeah, are we going to do this? And I can imagine him following him with excitement going, when he gets to that T-junction, he's going to turn right. And we're going to go and th overthrow the Romans. We're going to, the Romans who are persecuting, oppressing the Jewish people, who've held them captive, are tax, taxing them extremely exorbitantly high. They're going, Jesus, let's go overthrow those Romans. 
but Jesus does something as he is notorious of doing. He does not follow the status quo. He continually flips the script. Jesus gets to that crossroad and turns left. If you're wanting a title for the sermon this evening, it's Turn Left. Turn Left. I really believe tonight is, uh, I believe we're in a season, and I don't want to overreact to what we're seeing in the world around us, but for me in my lifetime, it feels like something is different. It feels like we're at a pivotal, pivotal stage of life as we know it. Not business as usual, not everyone's plan, not, hey, what are you going to do next year? It just feels like something has shifted, and we're either going to understand the gravity of the situation and respond, or we're going to just keep turning right and going with the flow and the expectations of the world. But I really believe that tonight is a, a crossroads night for us as a people. I believe it for us that actually tonight God is calling us to make decisions about how we're going to walk. So I want to say tonight, would you turn left? So why don't you turn to the person on your left and tell them, it's time to turn left. Come on, if you sat on the right-hand side, I'm so, so sorry for you tonight. You'll have nobody speaking to you. Shun the people on the right. Let's pray. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for your people. I thank you, God, for your spirit that allows your word to collide with your people. I thank you, God, would faith arise so that we would mix your word with faith and see life explode in our hearts. I thank you, Jesus. We're done with religion. We're done with status quo. We thank you, God, that you're flipping the script in our hearts personally so that we can walk with you and know you and find the paths of life that bring joy and fulfillment and peace. I thank you, Jesus, that you're calling us. Tonight, we say, speak, Lord, we're listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, 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 amen. Three things, very simply this evening, three things that we need to do, three things we need to turn left on if we're gonna walk right into the purposes of God in our life. You like that, you like that? Three things we need to turn left on if we're gonna walk right into what God has for us. The first one is this from the text, simply put, turn left from crowds. Turn left from crowds. I love this scene, Jesus riding in on the donkey, euphoria all around him. It's, it's, it's revival breaking out, sitting in uproar, people saying, who is this man that's caused the city to stand still? And the crowd declaring, yelling at the top of their voices, men, women, children, everyone, Hosanna, praise the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's so beautiful and an appropriate response of praise. And yet, if you know the rest of the story, if you know what is going to happen in just five days' time, and how the same voices that on that day, that Sunday, declared praise Him, will be the same voices five days later saying crucify Him, you'll see the fickleness of the crowd. The, this, the strangeness of this crowd. You see, actually, that word Hosanna in the NLT we read that said, praise the Lord, but that's a poor rendition of the word Hosanna. Hosanna is broken up into two parts. The first part, Hosan, means save, and na means now. You guys are now scholars. You know that word. Save now. And that's the crowd. The crowd, in a sense, have recognized that there's something special about Jesus, but the attention actually isn't on Jesus. It's still on their needs and their desires, their wants, and they're going, save us now! They're making that declaration there. And there you see what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to be the people's Messiah, the people's champ. If I can quote wrestling, you know. None of you watched wrestling. It's fine. Good. I'm glad. Move on. Don't worry about that. Scrap that from the tape. <laughs> we don't do tapes anymore. 
just so that you know. They're wanting the people's Messiah. They want the socialist Messiah. They want someone who's going to come and save them from their their needs and restore to them the kingdom. That's what they want in their opinion. And we find that in Luke chapter 4. It's it's, it's epitomized when when Jesus is in the desert, away from the crowds, isolated alone. And in the desert, the only voices that are there are the angels who are ministering to him, but also the voice of the enemy. And the enemy says this to Jesus, the notorious... conversation around the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, the devil says this, Jesus, you must be hungry. Turn these stones into bread. And it's so huge. And this temptation saying, actually, just take those stones and turn them to bread. Let's be honest, which Jesus could have done. He is God. He's got supernatural power. He actually does a miracle with food where he multiplies it supernaturally. One lunchbox gets multiplied multiple times over. Bread is multiplied. Fish is multiplied. He's got this, this skill in his arsenal where if he wanted to, he could do it. Why is this significant? Because in the Roman Empire, they had in those days a phrase, what they said to help placate the people they'll conquer, they said, we'll give them bread and circuses. Meaning, we'll just give them enough food and enough entertainment to keep the masses from revolting. So when Satan comes and says, turn the stones into bread, if Jesus wanted fame, if he wanted power and he wanted influence over the people, what he could have done was taken over the Romans' role and made stones into bread and started a mass revolution, gone full Oprah on them, you get bread, you get bread, you get bread, all of you getting bread. He had the power to do that. But I love this. Jesus, though, as we re- realize, he did not find his identity from the crowds. He had actually turned left on the opinion of him a long time ago. His heart did not flow with the, the, the applause or the condemnation of the crowds. You see, they so far, actually, if you read through the text, that Jesus, the voices of the people all the way through his life, called him a devil at times because they did not understand him. Other people just wrote him off and said, he's just a carpenter's son. And we'll see on Good Friday, they mocked him and they jeered at him and they, they put the, 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 the big words across his cross calling him the king of the Jews, not as a declaration of faith, but of mockery. This is who Jesus was, but I want to say in this moment that we realize that the pull of the crowd, the, the, the fear of man, and people pleasing, let me say this to you and I here and now, it's killing us. This, this pull, this, this sway of the crowd that is pulling us alone long, and Jesus responds in the desert where we left him there, Satan says, turn these souls into bread. Jesus famously retorts to him saying to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me say it more colloquially. Man shall not live on social media and comments alone. Man's identity is not shaped and founded on what you see on your newsfeed and your, your inbox alone. Maybe I think this is, could be said of some of us. We're saying things like this. Mirror, mirror on Facebook. Tell me how I'm supposed to look. Maybe it says this. Mirror, mirror on Instagram. Tell me who I really am. And our emotions are, are based on what people are saying, obsessing over the post, obsessing over, over the screenshot. Are we going to get the selfie in the right light? And all the selfies look the same. The background just changes. People. It's a personal gripe. But I, I, why I say this, and it's not a rally against social media, but it's the spirit of the age, the crowd, the fear of man, the people-pleasing nature that dictates the condition of our hearts, our emotions, our, our, version, our vision of success in our lives. I want to say this, that his word must define you. His word must define you. And let me say it this way, not just encourage you. What I mean by that, it's not there just to pep you up and keep you going. You're doing all right. You're great. You're swell. No, this is not just an encouragement, froth and bubble. No, just to get me through the day. This is our foundation, our definition, that this is our turn left moment. We say, this is what I stand on. 
You see, because if we're not going to invest in our identity, our hopes, our futures into the Word of God, let me tell you, it's like coming to a tank fight holding a water pistol and wondering why we're getting flattened week after week. Wondering why our emotions are getting flattened every week. We're going, pew, 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 pew. Why, God? I'm, I'm reciting your scripture. I go to church, but nothing happens. I keep getting run over. I keep falling at the same temptations. I keep falling prey to the same thing. And the crowd just pull me along and my opinions get swayed with the crowd. The latest conspiracy theory, I go along with it. And my emotions are rife. And I, I hate those people because they are not with us. And our emotions get there when we actually haven't allowed the word of God to define us. Let me say it this way. I've started to read the Bible in this way, saying I'm not moving from my, what I'm reading in the Bible until it transforms me. Not just enough to get me through the day. Let me put this this way. I really believe that actually so, so often, uh, and I, I hear it, when I'm growing up, you know, you go to a church meeting and people just play the, it's a nice prayer, but it's, 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 one, it's just that. It's a nice prayer when people say, God, let's just learn a little bit more about you tonight. As if we're coming just to, oh, I'd love just to get a fancy tidbit. What is God's favorite food? Hmm. You know, no. No, no, no. This is not, we're not just a component of our life. Let's just, and I get what you're saying. We want to learn about God. I'm not, not bashing that, but I think it's the heart behind it. Actually, it's a, it's a new type of language that's saying, actually, God, this word of God needs to define who I am. Shape who I am. Transform who I am. You see, years ago, I went through a season when I, I came onto eldership at Life Change Church at a young age. And the word unqualified was spoken by numerous people, not only by people, but actually into my own spirit by the enemy. And actually, I started to agree with it and say it out of my own mouth. I would say phrases, you know, I'm not very experienced. I know I don't know this much. I can't quote Hebrew and Greek. Yes, I know, but I'm not, I'm not married. I know. And I started to believe that I was unqualified. And I allowed the pull of that season, the pull of the crowd, the pull of people pleasing to pull my heart this way. And I thought, actually, you know what? I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to go to the word of God. And I remember I read Ephesians chapter 1 over and over and over and said, I want this to be my reality. I don't want this just to be good stuff for, for somebody to hashtag on Instagram next to a Bible and a coffee cup in the morning. I want this to be, actually change me. And my Bible, Ephesians 1, is just, was, my old Bible was littered with highlights and circles and marks. And I look back and I with, 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 stained with tears because that rooted me and established me. That when that word unqualified came, I said, yeah, that's what you say. But that's not who I am. Let me tell you, Martin Luther, if you want to go a little bit old school, he said it this way, one of the reformers. He spoke this when he was faced with a crossroads moment where actually the, whatever, what all the history and tradition said about the church and how they relate to God said, turn right, just keep turning right. And inside of him said, I can't just keep doing that. There has to be something different. He said these words. He said, when he read the book of Romans, he said, I beat upon Paul. If you if you're not familiar, Paul was one of the authors in the, in the, of the scriptures. He wasn't actually hitting a guy named Paul. But he, was, he said, I beat upon the word of God, beat upon Paul until he would yield his secrets to me. When last did you read the word of God with that vigor? I want to know you. I need you to define me, God. And I really believe this, that if we don't do that, we, the crowd is, the pull of the crowd is, is violent. It is pulling. And if you don't re, uh, violently turn left against it, you're going to be swept up along with it. It's time to make a decision. Turn left. Why don't you say it out with me? Say, I'm turning left. Turn left from the crowd. Secondly, turn left from religion. You see the story, this narrative, as I said, he gets to the crossroads. The crowd of raise their voices, should go right. He turns left, goes down to the temple. And as he arrives in the temple, 
He finds a temple that is full of people. It's Passover week. It's the Jewish tradition, and people have come from near and far. And this is the week where the the religious elite make their dollar. They make their bucks because they know that people are coming all from all over to Jerusalem, and they've set up, they've turned the temple into a wholesale market. They've got sheep for sacrifices at high prices. It's just like exorbitant. Guys are like, is that the Zim dollar price? Wow, this is crazy. And doves for those a little bit poorer, and, and it's crazy, and they've, and they've put up different marketing wares, different things here, and tables, and, and they're selling things, because they know, actually, we can, we can really coin it if we do it now well in this season. This is our Super Bowl. We're going to make it. And the whole religious game is, is, has moved slowly from actually we want to love God and please God to actually how do we keep furnishing our own lives? How do we just, in, under the veil of religion, how do we make things better for ourselves? And Jesus arrives on this scene, and I love this vision of Jesus. If you've ever only ever come to church and you've heard about Jesus, baby Jesus, sweet, six ounce, baby Jesus. You're not going to understand this Jesus. You see, he walks in, and one text says that he brandished himself a whip. This is, he went full Chuck Norris. He made himself a whip, and it says he walks in and he starts turning over their ta- tables. Sheep are flying. There's noises going everywhere. Doves are going out the window. It's just, it is crazy. We got, Jesus is just going, throwing tables. He's got fire in his eyes, and people are freaking out, saying, but what is this guy doing? Gone is the donkey. This guy is now raging with a whip. This is Jesus. And I love this. And, and he walks in. And, and, and I want to say this before we move on. I want to say Dorothy Sayers, a, a great author, wrote this. She said, we have made Jesus into little more than a domesticated house cat with clipped nails when he in truth is the lion of Judah, never tamed by man. And doesn't it, I feel that sometimes my own heart, that we've got Jesus on, on our side. Oh, dear Lord, please help me with this one thing. Lord, Lord, just keep him there. Keep, no, he's not, a, he's not a domesticated pet for your, just for when you really need him. Hey, by the way, no, he's the line of Judah who wants to roar over your life. And religion, that's just the essence of religion. And Titus puts it this way, defines religion as having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And that's what happens. If I'm honest in my heart too often, I allow this thing, just put a cloak on, let's make sure everything, put a mask on. Excuse the metaphor for the season we're in. I know, masks are good. But, but we put a mask on uh, metaphorically. We put, hey, I'm fine, things are good. And we cover up stuff. We cover up sins. We cover up uh, 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 bad relationships. We cover inbox messages. We hide things. We hide internet search histories. And we pretend everything's fine, but actually we're not living in the power that he has because we're just cloaking it up. And we're, not, we're just as bad as the Pharisees. Let me say it this way, Jesus still turns over tables. This wasn't a one-time deal. He still turns over tables. And can I tell you where he does it? In our hearts. He wants to ride in and turn over the tables and upset the religious status quo because he says, I've got more. I've got more. I'm not going to let you settle. And I want to say a phrase that is burning in my heart of saying, Gabe, it's no time for fake. I don't know about you. It feels like the tide of, of fakeness and of, of just, it's just bizarre. It's like, you know, just this, this, this sort of like, you never know where you stand with people. A preacher says this and you doubt him. A politician says that and you're going, yeah, but what do you really mean? And whether they're on the right, whether they're on the left, I go, I don't trust any of you. Am I the only person? It just feels like fake, fake, fake. People just saying things. And I'm going, God forbid there will be us as a people. That we're not a religious organization just going through the motions. We're people who say, no, we've got the reality. I don't have time for fake anymore. And Jesus says this in the text. This, he quotes a scripture. And this is where we have to lean in. He says this to them when he turns over the table. He says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Let me tell you, the context, Jesus would have said that. The whole room who would have been shocked into silence by the tables would have at that moment exploded with anger at Jesus. They would have been like, what? How dare? It's as, as if he said a swear word to them. 
Why? Because he's quoting something from the book of Jeremiah. It's, they know this text. They've preached this text. They, they have studied this text. They can breathe it out automatically. It's like me, if I started to sing an Ed Sheeran lyric here, you'd all go, I know how to finish that song. Because we know it. Well, you know, Ed Sheeran, Redhead, he's good with us. That's an aside. But it was, it's almost that colloquial. When Jesus says this, it might be foreign to us, but to them it was like a song lyric. What are you saying? There's subtext there. What Jesus is saying is he's saying something, but he's, what he's saying is he's laying down an accusation, big time. You see, if you go read the quotes, it's from Jeremiah 7, 11, and actually what he's doing, in the, the prophet Jeremiah, years before, was warning the religious elite of the day that captives are going to come and take you away to Babylon. The nation of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel is going to go into captivity and be held as slaves and captives. And no one listened to Jeremiah. They all just kept turning right. They just keep going with the religious jargon. Let me tell you, the religious elite of that day kept on doing their religious ceremonies, kept on doing it all the way as the captives came in, arrested them, took them. They kept doing their religious ceremonies, kept doing it, and no one said anything except one, Jeremiah. He said, I'm turning left. And this is what he said. If you go read Jeremiah 7, he says this incredible thing because Babylon was the shame of the Pharisees. It was a shame. Don't talk about that moment. It's embarrassing. But in Jeremiah, this is what he said. The prophet Jeremiah, in the context of, of that scripture, says, I will not say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that is what religion does. I know it very well. People these days will phone the pastor. Hey, man, I'm not, re- I'm not really doing very well. I need you to come pray for our business. And you go, oh, cool, I'd love to come pray for your business. And I say, cool, how, have you guys paying taxes? Have you? No, I'm not doing that. But just, just actually, don't worry about that. Just pray a blessing over me. So you want me to come and say peace where there's no peace. That's what you want. Guys, Alison, I'm really having trouble with a relationship. You know, we are, you know, this sort of thing, my sexuality, fill in the blank. But, you know, can just tell me it's all going to be okay. Cool, but this is what the word of God says. Ooh, no, 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 no. Don't tell me to change anything. No, no. Just tell me peace, peace. But Jeremiah said, I won't say peace, peace when there is no peace. Because actually, I'm not going to do religion. We're not going to do that game. And this is so huge for you and I, because in the Luke 4 narrative, as I said, they come, Satan comes to Jesus. The second temptation, he takes him to a high place and says, all of this will be yours. Just bow down to me. And that's the language of Babylon. Babylon did that. They erected a statue. And guess what? Besides Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon, all of them did their religious thing. They allowed religious freedom to their religious practices, but they had to bow to the statue as well. And all of them just kept turning right, going, yeah, you know what, we'll bow to that. It doesn't really mean much. But actually, what you bow to, you'll end up bound to. And this is the problem here in this reality that the Pharisees, what they wanted, they wanted a Torah Messiah. They wanted somebody, a religious Messiah. Someone who would come, who looked like them, who talked like them, who ate like them, who fulfilled the law and did all the things beautifully, but actually, who, but don't upset what we've built. We want someone like that. And unfortunately, Jesus kept turning left. He was notorious for it. He arrives on the scene and he goes and eats with he who's not supposed to eat. He goes to tax collectors' homes. He, he fraternizes with notorious sinners. He touches lepers. He touches people with issues of blood. He touches dead bodies. He turns everything. He heals on the Sabbath. They hated him because he kept turning left. You're supposed to go with the status quo. But Jesus won't stay with the status quo. And I, and I want to encourage us. Maybe people, you, you're thinking, are we what, end times? And you want, you want a sign of the end times? Anyone here for a sign? Where this end times? Well, I'm not going to give you any blood moons tonight. I'm not going to give you any mark of the beast theories either. I'm going to give you one straight from the Bible that says this. This is the sign of the end times 
the love of many will grow cold. Maybe not as sexy, maybe not as selling as many books, but can I tell you, as I look across Christendom, as I look across my own heart at times, I can see that as my heart says Jesus, my mouth says Jesus, but my heart is cold. And it's time for the church to wake up, turn left. Here's the greatest cure against religion. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked for it. You guys ready for it? Confess it, bring it into the light, turn left and refuse to stay in the apathy of lukewarmness. Refuse. Religion thrives, the having a form of godliness but denying its power when we just keep things hidden and we just keep moving, walking, turning right as if nothing is the matter. Let me tell you in this thing, I want to say, would you turn over that table? Whatever is in your heart, that, that thing that you've been suppressing, that addiction that you, no one will ever find about, that relationship that you know is not of God, the, the way you're conducting your finances that you know is not right, that, that emotional state, that, that, that place you go to, emotionally vent that you know is not right, would you turn over that table? Because if you don't, he will. He will. It's time to turn left on religion. Thirdly and finally said, from the crowds, from religion, Thirdly, I want to say, turn left from self. I hope you're encouraged this evening, everybody. Let me say it this way. The greatest enemy to you is you. <laughs> Let me say it this way. No one has lied to you more than yourself. No one has broken more promises to you than yourself. Let me say it this way. The greatest cure, let me get it up front. The Bible cure Turn left from the pull of selfish desires, selfish ambition, living for small, safety, secluded. Yeah, I just want what makes me happy. And, and actually finding that that road, that junction of turning right on that leads to disease, leads to depression, leads to anxiety, leads to death, leads to smallness. The cure for that is die to self. Die to self. You see, when we read the text, we realize that the crowd, the Pharisees, they all wanted a powerful Messiah. They wanted the people Messiah. Turn the stones into bread. They wanted a Torah Messiah. Show us, fulfill the Lord, do all that stuff. They also wanted a powerful Messiah, a King Messiah, who would take out the Romans. That's why they were so excited. Turn right, Jesus. And that's why all the conversation up to that point was, can I sit on your left? Can I sit on your right? Who's going to be the greatest Jesus? They want to get on who's got the front row seat when you take out the Romans and we establish the kingdom here in, in, in Israel. I want to be with you. This, 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 this economic kingdom. Come on, we want to do it, this political kingdom. But the problem was nobody wanted a suffering Messiah. Nobody wanted a beaten, bloodied Messiah. Nobody wanted a dying Messiah. But Jesus still turned left. Let me say it this way. Right now in the world, do you, know when, you want to know where the greatest revival is happening in the world? Right now. It's not happening with a charismatic preacher in a stadium. It's not happening with a, a, a YouTube preacher who's got this great following of, on Instagram and living this exorbitant lifestyle. No, no, no. The greatest revival right now, validated and, 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 and people are, sh are starting to talk about it, is happening in the nation of Iran, which is literally called the Islamic Republic of Iran, is the greatest revival of Christianity at the moment. Let me tell you about the revival. It's a, a church that owns no property, no buildings, no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. Nation of Iran. And as I've been watching and reading, and, the, and it's just fascinating, the story, and it stirs my heart, this is the sort of discipleship program they do. Because for them, if, if people come to faith, they are, they are literally, when everything else is turning right, they are turning left on their culture, their family, their future, their finances. They're going actually death to all that stuff. I'm going this way. And literally, when they do that, 
there might be death. So this is Discipleship 101 in Iran is give your life to Jesus. They give their life to Jesus. They encounter Jesus. First conversation is not, can I get you a coffee? Do you want, would you like a small group that meets? What type of needs? Do you need a, like a nice big small group or small one? Is it too far from you? Can you serve? No, it's none of that. It's none of this very light and fluffy. Let me make this easy for you. We'll still try and make it easy for you here. Don't worry. We'll give you coffee. But the underpinning that is this. The first question is say, get saved. First question, are you willing to die? Let me coach you on how to die well for Jesus because it might be your reality. And as they say that, exactly that, I, I remember I, I got hectic and they, this is their comments. They said, as we, they said, when we start to realize that people were marveling at this and going, wow, they were like, wow, it is radical. It's so radical, isn't it? And they said, then we realize it's not radical, it's just biblical because that's all over the scriptures. And actually, they're not the anomaly, we are. You see, another preacher went to visit an underground church, an American Western preacher went to go visit and pray with brothers and sisters of Christ in an underground church in China where they were under threat of persecution, losing jobs, and, and at, extre- at the extremity, losing their lives as well. And he was in a prayer meeting where he says it's the most powerful prayer meeting he's ever been in. And as they're praying, and they're praying, these, this one guy says, I'm praying for this brother in Christ who's just as the whole business has been ransacked and lost all his finances because he gave his life to Jesus. We pray for courage to stand. And, and for my own words, well, he'll keep turning left. And, uh, and then other the guy praying for a family member. He says, hey, they've lost their brother. They came, the, the secret police came and they've taken him for questioning. They haven't seen him for weeks. Pray for that family. They'll stand on their faith. And they're praying these prayers and he's like praying, going, God, that's so incredible. Yes, God. And then they stop and say, and you, brother, what can we pray for you and your church back home? And he said, I felt embarrassed because my prayer requests were, well, Aunt Dorothy's got a sore toe um, and um, help the kids with exams and now, I'm not saying God doesn't want to hear about those concerns. He cares about them. But it does, it's an indictment on the sort of lives that we are maybe living. The, 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 what, who is on the throne? Are we turning right towards self again and again and again and again? When actually God says, hey, I've called you to turn left. When will somebody turn left? And I love this. I've said this many times. I've said it, that Jesus is not looking for full buildings. He's not looking for uh, all the visual signs of success. He's not looking for, hey, looking good. He's actually not looking for fans. He's not looking for applause. Jesus is looking for followers. Followers. And I've said it many times that Jesus actually, as I read the scriptures, I I studied marketing for four years. I can tell you the four P's of marketing if you want afterwards. But but Jesus actually, if I read that from my marketing background, he needed a PR guy. Because he really wasn't good at this thing of getting followers to himself. It often seemed like he was trying to talk people out of following him. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Jesus, he gets up and he starts saying this. A guy comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And if I'm that guy, I'm like, awesome, buddy, let me welcome, welcome. He has a visitor's pack. It's going to be great. Come on, come on. We're going to get you in. This is really cool. Meet Peter. He is so good at sport jokes. Tell him the sport joke, Peter. Make. Jesus says this to the guy. Great enthusiasm, buddy. But he says, just I want you to know, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Basically, he's saying, you want to follow me? Great. You need to know you might be homeless. Wow. <laughs> Sales pitch. Thanks, Jesus. The disciples going... Jesus, 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 we're trying to start a revolution here. Jesus goes on and says this. Another guy says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. It's hectic. It's basically him saying, don't go to your dad's funeral. Come follow me. This is hectic. If you keep reading this, Jesus says in this way to another guy, he says, sell everything and give it to the poor. Come follow me. Another time he says this, he says, uh, if you do, a crowd is gathered and, and, you know, Jesus is there. And if I'm Jesus, I'm starting with a witty joke up front. You know, come with a couple of good points and maybe a witty story that's emotional with the keys playing in the background. That's a good sermon, Jesus. I can help him. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. He leads with this statement. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. He went full twilight on him. It's like, can you imagine? It's almost like disciples going, oh, gosh, he's going that full eating flesh thing. Oh, I don't know. We're going to have to chat to him after this. Jesus said this way, and most famously, he said, if you do not deny yourself, pick up your cross, you cannot have any part of me. Follow me. Follow me. Now, this is huge. Maybe in the religious section, we know. We go, oh, pick up your cross and follow me. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. This is before he's died on the cross. He has not redeemed that cross yet to being something of a tool of saving grace. That cross, in their mind, when he's saying it, is a means of execution for criminals. So basically, nowadays, the guy's saying, pick up the electric chair and strap it on your back and follow me. It's like, what? This guy's lost it. But I want to tell you, he hasn't lost it. Maybe he's found it. Because he turned left, and maybe you think, wow, that's huge. I want to tell you, I, I, I love the fact maybe we've been doing it wrong, where Jesus has maybe been saying, actually, this is what following me looks like. Maybe we've been fluffing it up because we want to appeal to the selfish desires of our hearts, when actually he says, no, no, I want you to turn left. And too many preachers spend hours going, well, Jesus said that, but actually he doesn't mean that. Wow! We want to rephrase what Jesus said? We want to repackage what Jesus said so it fits well in our millennial latte cup of Christianity. Mmm, nice. Almond milk. No. He's not after our desires. He's not after our happiness. He's saying, well, you turn left because that's the only way to life. The only way to true joy. The only way to true significance. The only way to true happiness is to turn left on self. And I want to say it again. If you want to walk right into life, you have to turn left. I wish I had searched the Bible for something encouraging this morning. <laughs> something, something like that would really pep you up. But I felt this would be the most encouraging. It's revolutionizing my heart and God is calling us. I, I want to say this as we come into land. Jesus comes, rides in, turns the tables over, and sets into motion events that five days later will culminate with Jesus standing at the hands of the political and religious elites and with the crowd banging for his blood. And as, as, as Pilate stood in front of the people, on, on the crowd's right was a man, notorious sinner, a notorious murderer, an insurrectionist, a man who had tried to overthrow the government but hadn't got very far, a man who fitted the bill for what the people's desires actually wanted, Barabbas, on their right. And on their left was a man named Jesus. Silent, refusing to rise to the bait, refusing to defend himself, re re refusing to give in to the crowd, give in to the religious elite, re refusing to give in to selfish desires and ambition. Silent. And as Pilate said, which one do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? The people yet again, notoriously, as our own hearts always do, they turned right and said, Barabbas, we want that one. Now what is so huge is that name Barabbas, Bar-Abbas. In that day and age, the name Bar, that word Bar means son. So when you had Bartholomew, it's son of Bartholomew. If you had Bar Jonah, he's the guy meaning son of Jonah. So this guy is Bar Abbas, meaning son of the father. On their right was a pseudo, a cloaked up son of the father. And on their left, though, was the true son of the father. But it didn't look like their version of what they wanted. It didn't look happy-go-lucky. It didn't look like this is the best way. It looks too hard for us. But those people chose that day to release the wrong son of the father. And humanity has been doing that ever since. Choosing the wrong son, choosing the wrong son, choosing the wrong son. When actually we've been called to turn left and release the power of his life. Let me say it this way as I land. They said this famously in Matthew's account of that story. They said this, Pilate said to him, listen, I... I you,
Are you sure you want this guy? You're not going to release this guy? I, I think this guy's innocent, but if you're going to do that, wash my hands of it. And the crowd says this. They bade for the blood and they said this. They said, let his blood, let the innocent blood of Jesus, if, let it fall on us and our children. And they said that violently, meaning saying actually, we, we'll be happy to take the consequences of whatever we want. But what I love about that phrase is I've underlined it in their worst moment. In their greatest moment where they turned right and refused to turn left, they were actually prophesying their salvation. Let his blood fall on me and their children. And now let me tell you, Jesus' blood, though we have chosen right, though we have gone right with, our, with the crowd's opinion of ourselves and given up to the, the spirit of the age, we've turned right with religion and denied his power and cloaked up our sin and called it something else. Though we've gone right with our selfish desires, again, our lusts, our greeds, and gone over what is easy, his blood has fallen on you and our children. And that's his grace. And I want to tell you it's because of that, not because of our, the strength of our conviction or the depth of our courage, but it's actually the height of His grace that we are able to stand and choose life. And I want to invite you to do that tonight. So I want to say today, today is a crossroads day. Turn left. Turn left. Turn left.